You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters close to the stars. And this is episode 452 of the Colombia Calling podcast. Thank you again to all of those of you out there who tuned into episode 451. That's with my wife, Alba, who, uh, well, she and I were discussing the very real fears about the Magdalena River bursting its banks up there at the level, the height of Montpost, and of course, where we have our small businesses at the moment, still 10 to 12 centimeters away. And of course, we discuss all the other natural disasters taking place around Colombia due to the, the climate phenomenon known as La Nina. And of course, the rains continue here in Colombia due to the La Nina. And so well, uh, let's just hope and keep our fingers crossed that things improve on that front and perhaps people are allowed and can, um, can go back to their homes and their cultivations and so on and not so much is lost uh, this week's episode is with Sergio Guzman, who will need no introduction. He's been on the show many times, but Sergio Guzman is the director of Columbia Risk Analysis. So do check that out. Columbia Risk Analysis, of course, provides excellent in-depth reports about Colombia. So anything you want to know, economic, uh, you know, political and beyond, that's where to go and look. And thank you to Clara Clara in Sweden, who signed up on Patreon to support us. So thank you so much. If you want to support us on Patreon, that's www.patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling. And you can throw a few dollars a month at us there and help us maintain economic viability for the podcast. So thank you again for that. It would be nice to make this a truly economically viable project, but you know, how so be it. I, we still enjoy doing it, of course. And of course, uh, Emily Hart will be back with the news in just a moment. And then we'll be over with Sergio Guzman talking about President Petro's first 100 days and a new report that Colombia Risk Analysis have brought out this week about political risk and the parts of Colombia that are more at risk and so on. So very interesting indeed this week, very good overview of Colombia and of course the politics, which I know so many of you really enjoy. So thank you again for listening. Don't go away. And of course, please check out our Patreon page. That's www.patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling. And now some words from our sponsors. The Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. The Columbia Calling Podcast is also proud to say that we are sponsored by BNB 
Colombia Tours, which is a leading tour operator in Colombia, providing a large range of private day tours, transportation and bespoke packages throughout Colombia since 2017. By popular demand, from January 2023, they will be providing exclusive small group shared tours for those aged 50 and over. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a private package of your own, just complete the form on the Columbia Calling website, that's columbiacalling.co, or the Plan My Trip form on the BNB Columbia Tours website, that's bnbcolumbia.com, and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all your questions, and to start the planning of your Columbia adventure. So please support our sponsors, our patrons here on the Columbia Calling Podcast. That's bnbcolumbia.com and latinnews.com. Thank you again. I'm Emily Hart, and these are your top stories for the week of December 5th, 2022. 157 social leaders were murdered between January and September of this year, according to new data from the Ombudsman's office. That's 12 more than the figure for the whole of last year. Most affected are community action groups, indigenous and Afro-descendant authorities, and those who protect land, territory and the environment. Armed groups continue to be the perpetrators of the huge majority of these murders. Homicides as a whole are, however, dropping around 4% per year in Colombia, Between August and October of this year, homicide figures fell 8% as compared to the same months in the year before. However, some cities, particularly on the Atlantic coast, saw substantial increases, including Cartagena, Santa Marta, Valle del Par, Monteria and Cincelejo. Territorial disputes between criminal organisations over control of exit routes for cocaine have been posited as a key factor in that increase. Commander of the Segunda Marquetalia, a major FARC dissident group, Andres Allende has committed to total peace, saying the group want land for productive projects and integration into society. There are now 22 armed structures seeking to join the new policy of total peace. According to a new report by the Fundación Ideas para la Paz, there has been a 73% reduction in fighting and offensives by security forces against illegal groups as compared to last year. This, as well as a 74% decrease in actions by those armed groups against infrastructure and state property. However, confrontations between armed groups have risen by 79%, now at their highest figure since 2016, with extremely high humanitarian impact. New research from human rights group Amnesty International has revealed dozens of allegations against police officers of sexual abuse and torture of women and members of the LGBTQI community between April and June of last year, during the Paro Nacional national strike. Many of these abuses were perpetrated in police custody. In none of the cases studied by Amnesty International has there been a conviction of the perpetrator. The report also notes the excessive force used against protesters. Chair of Amnesty International Agnes Calamard commented that the judicial system in Colombia is either lacking the competence or the political will to pursue what has clearly been a pattern of excessive use of force. 
The man who sexually assaulted a minor on public transport in Bogotá, Juan Pablo González Gómez, who was later killed in police custody, was reportedly killed by fellow detainees, Colombian prosecutors have revealed. Five police officers now stand accused of omitting their duties and allowing the murder to occur. Extreme weather continues as part of this year's rainy season. A landslide buried a bus in Risaralda department this week, killing at least 27 people. The unusually strong rains are reportedly due to the La Nina cyclical weather phenomenon, in which cooling of water in the Pacific Ocean leads to heavy rain in the Andes. All this exacerbated by climate change. The National Unit for Disaster Risk Management has reported that more than 200 have died this year, with hundreds more injured and hundreds of thousands affected. The floods have also destroyed crops, further driving up food prices and contributing to an already serious cost-of-living crisis amid high inflation, which hit 12.5% in November. Also this week, Congress approved a bill to regulate cryptocurrency exchanges, online platforms where cryptocurrencies are traded. The law will create a single registry of platforms, along with rules for regulation. Two pre-Columbian archaeological artefacts have been returned from London, a ceramic Kimbaya statue and a ceramic head. Earlier in November, another 15 pieces arrived from the Netherlands and 50 from Paris. All artefacts voluntarily handed over by citizens, encouraged by movements happening across Europe to return archaeological objects to their places of origin, particularly those belonging to indigenous cultures. Those were your top stories for this week. Thanks for listening. And we're back. This is episode 452 of the Colombia Calling podcast. I'm Richard McCall here in Bogota, Colombia. And my very special guest is across the way in Bogota as well, Sergio Guzman, who needs no introduction to any of you because he's been on the show many times now. He's the director of Columbia Risk Analysis. And we're going to be talking about, well, the first, I guess, like 120, 125 days of Petro's uh, presidency and a new report that has come out, he brought out this week, called the 2022 Subnational Risk Index for Colombia. So, Sergio, welcome back on Colombia Calling. Richard, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, to all the listeners, Merry Christmas. Uh, I hope this is going well for you um, as well. And thank you so much for having us back on. Well, it's so cool because, I mean, really, you know, we've kind of grown up together. Your your startup and my little podcast, we've kind of just followed one another parallel. And I, I hope, I would imagine that I hope I've sent a few people your way. And I know that you've sent people my way because your episode, whatever number it was, when we did the uh, sort of reasons behind the Paro Nacional or the you know national strikes, is still the number one listened to episode on the Columbia Calling podcast. So there you go. High praise from our listeners. Suck it, Adrian. <laughs> I, I'll tell him. I'll tell him you said that. Adrian Alcimer of Columbia Reports, of course, always popular, but not as popular as Sergio. Uh, Sergio, let's get into the the let's get into the thick of this. Um, 120 or 100 and something days of uh, President Petro. What 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 do we take away from this? How do we feel so far about this? 
I mean, generally, I think we need to analyze Petro as a president who has a very, very ambitious agenda, mm-hmm. somebody who wants to make very substantive changes to to Colombia. And of course, you know, talking about 100 days, it's sort of an arbitrary number. Mm-hmm. People say they don't really do the 100 days because nothing can be achieved in 100 days. And it's mostly for the press. But Petro's also a vain person, uh, and he commissioned a 10-episode documentary of his first 100 days, featuring, of course, one full episode on his wife, for instance. So so Petro also looks at the 100 days and says, look, uh, I accomplished a lot. Uh, the truth is, he, he accomplished more than his opponents give him credit for, yeah. but he accomplished well less than he set out to do uh, as as a goal in his first 100 days. Um, If we really look at Petro and what matters most to him, uh, and we've said it, you know, from day one, is the symbols. Uh, Mm. The symbols and the messages that he portrays, the narrative, the changing narrative. Uh, And that has really three very large dimensions. We can put this in three large buckets. The first one is Petro wants to change the way that the private sector generates wealth in Colombia, mm-hmm. right? He 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 does not like uh, a lot of private wealth. He does not like uh, the oil sector, the gas sector, notably. He does not like the extractive sector uh, more generally, uh, and he does he 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 goes for a more much more nationalistic economic approach. Um, similar to what Rafael Correa did in Ecuador, similar to what Andres Manuel López Obrador does in Mexico. And that leads to point number two, which is to really uh, change the role of the state in the in the redistribution and administration of, of that wealth, right? Uh, and we're seeing Petro much more with, with a greater proclivity for state-owned enterprises. He wants to put a bigger hand in Ecopetrol and how that company runs, potentially uh, drawing in gas and contracts from Venezuela, etc. cetera. Uh, he wants the government to more heavily handed, heavy-handedly regulate the utility companies um, and br- have them bring their prices down for consumers, et cetera. And then finally, and I think that this is a very important one, he wants his government to serve the most vulnerable and destitute Colombians above all. Um, and the first step to doing that is having those uh, most vulnerable and most destitute people uh, become a central part of his um, government. Mm. And so we saw that first, you know, with Francia Marquez um, becoming vice president. This is the first government that makes a concerted effort to look like the people it governs. Uh, and so in a way, that is quite demonstrative of what Petro wants to do. So those three things, I would say, are his large priorities, not just for his 100 days, but for his entire presidency. Changing the role of the private sector, expanding the role of the state in the distribution of wealth, and making the government at the, putting the government at the service of the poorest. Yeah. Well, I mean, these don't sound awful, but I, you know, I... First, let's let me just address it. the ten episode documentary. It did pop up on my feed. I did not open it. Um, I also, it just smacks to me of uh, of uh, 
prevention and action a little bit. You know, uh, you oh, know, absolutely. Do, do well, remember management. when the, the first lady, Maria Juliana Duque, wanted to do a book, an oh, autobiography, yeah. uh, paid for by the state. Like, Petristas and people on the left were livid about mm. this. But but it's 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 much more like you know when they when they're in power it doesn't it, that doesn't matter. No, well, we're seeing that a lot. And actually, uh, Veronica Alcocer, so the the first lady, was in Montpos when I was there last, and um, we weren't allowed to take photos of her. It had to be managed, and so wow. you could see that 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 kind of thing. It, she, you know, I was actually approached by her aides to don't take photos, but if you'd like one. Just ask and she'll pose and the official photographer will send it to your email. And I was like, so you can see the sort of management being done. There is some some uh, consulting firm doing massive work, aren't they, on, on uh, 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 what do you call it, uh, you know, their, their PR campaign and their image campaign. So, yeah, we can see that in a 10-episode documentary. I don't know how, how well it has been watched. <laughs> Um, but let's move on to that because you've mentioned obviously the private sector and of course the extractive sector, oil, gas, and so on. Can he really change this? Can he really sort of, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, cause I, I see, I see one thing is Petro. Okay. Through Irene, Irene Vélez creating and Su Susanna Muhammad, um, so the ministers for, for mines and, and energy and the minister for the environment, I see them creating this new framework, you know, environmental framework, but I don't know how much more our president can actually properly do. What do you think? Look, you know, he stated his objective for Colombia to, to reduce its dependence on hydrocarbons as a main source of um, energy mm -hmm. and and but the problem is Colombia's exports. It's not much so much Colombia's um, consumption or Colombia's uh, you know depend reliance on on gas and oil um, it, because we have a very clean grid to be honest. Mm. But it's more like Colombia's export basket is depending on oil and gas and and mining. Uh, over 55% of our exports are related to these kinds of products. So undoing that is not just going to have a huge effect on, on our balance of payments, mm -hmm. but it's also going to have a huge effect on the fiscal deficit because, of course, 26% of government revenues come from royalties and taxes to the oil sector. And with Petro's first tax reform that passed, it even amounts that number uh, mm. because it heavily taxes the the, the sector itself. Mm. And and you know, I reading, I don't know where I read it this morning, but I did note it down that if we look at October's incomes of from foreign direct investment, you know, petroleum and mining makes up seventy two percent of that in Colombia. Yeah. I mean, so that was six point eight six six million dollars just for. Uh, six. I think that's billions, isn't it? Uh, for petroleum and mining, and I mean, obviously, it's up on last year and so on. But it's a huge portion. And now, I, for one, would 
I support an energy transition, but as you say, we have a green grid. I support it over what was said, like the 12-year transition, but I feel that he's, you know, and this comes back to the main point of, of Gustavo Petro again. He promises so much, and I think he's very outspoken, and as you said, he's got an ego the size of an aircraft hangar. Um, uh, and uh, so what, I mean... I think he he says a lot to co- sort of placate and win over supporters that he's just not going to be able to do. Right, and you know, look, you know, I think the the most the most pressing example of him over promising and under delivering is the tax reform. Mm. Uh, not that it wasn't a success; it's a big deal that the government passed the tax reform uh, in its first one hundred days. It's a big deal that the government changed the timeline on how tax reforms usually pass, which is usually tax reforms are usually presented in October and passed uh, in the week be- between Christmas and New Year's. Right. Mm. That's that's tradition. That's that's how things uh, happen here. Um, but Petro presented his tax reform on August 8th, the day after he he was sworn in. But mm-hmm. during the campaign, he, he spoke about a 50 billion peso tax reform or 50 trillion peso tax reform, um, which because of the zeros and the Spanish and the English, 50 trillion peso tax reform. That was his goal, right? The day of August 8th, when he introduced his tax reform, he introduced a 25 trillion peso tax reform, mm-hmm. half on account, actually, this is funny, on account of Ecopetrol's extraordinary uh, first semester's earnings mm-hmm. for 2022. So they they do recognize their reliance on the oil and gas sector and Ecopetrol in particular. Um, and then during the negotiations in Congress, the tax reform was watered down from 25 to 22. And then that was the first set of debates. And then in the second set of debates, it was watered down from 22 to around 19. Mm-hmm. So the tax reform essentially lost 60% of of its content from what Petro actually set out to do to then what he ultimately passed. And I think that it's going to go similarly with most reforms that that Petro does. So it's important to to understand what are the things that are, you know, that represent that 50 billion or 50 trillion pesos. So -hmm. when he talks about the healthcare reform, and he says, I want to eliminate the EPSs, <laughs> right? That is the healthcare providers. Um, that's the 50 trillion pesos. Mm. When he ultimately passes a reform, it's probably not going to contain that. It's mm-hmm. pro- pro- probably going to be much to, to, to more adequate proportions. But, so, but the signal he's sending is, I'm going to finish the EPS. Um, so I think it, it, it would behoove sort of investors and people watching Petro to understand that the signal and the noise that he transmits are two very different things. And they need to be looking out for that because Petro is going to play with that all the time during his presidency. Making So he said, for instance, I'm going to build a train from Barranquilla to Buenaventura, right? Um, that's a 50 trillion peso tax reform. Mm-hmm. Again, He's probably not going to build a train. He's probably going to make sure that there's a roadmap for this type of project. 
in in at some point in the future. Mm. But actually getting that done is going to be much more difficult. He also says he wants Colombia to have an electric vehicle factory or a, or a factory for electric vehicle batteries. Again, 50 trillion pesos, not mm. going to happen. But he wants to sort of leave the groundwork ready uh, for, for that to happen. He was talking last week at the Infrastructure Congress about a road that connects Puerto Inirida uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in Bichada with Tumaco in, 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 in the Pacific coast. Again, 50 trillion pesos. So when he says Colombia needs to decarbonize by not having any, any oil and gas production, you know, to me, it's all the same. All of this is is talking about overpromising and underdelivering. So, you know, beyond beyond what uh, we've just talked about in the tax reform, because that is, I mean, you know, watered down but long needed. Um, what else has uh, Gustavo Petro achieved in these one hundred and something days? Well, I think it's important to to mention how he's been able to have a large portion of the Congress uh, on his side. Yeah. You know, he he's not only passed tax reform, which, which is a big deal. He started working on the National Development Plan. He's putting together a, a political reform right now. Um, and he's, you know, also trying to, in, in at least in terms of narrative, mm. to prepare the field, to lay the groundwork for, for what's going to be a future three and a half more years of very ambitious legislation he wants to move forward. Um, I think also, you know, we can talk about the oil and gas sector uh, more, if you like, because that's that's something that people mm-hmm. are very concerned about. Um, and it's something that definitely moves the economy. But Petro has not prioritized um, mm. building good relations with the private sector at all, uh, as, as I mentioned. But he has uh, also made a lot of appointments, uh, not just of cabinet members, which we didn't know until the very last minute, but he's also uh, appointed the directors of several agencies, several um, organizations that will have an effect on on our bureaucracy going into the future. Okay. And and so, yeah, mention the oil and gas, because you say the private sector and so on, they are feeling a bit wobbly. They, you know, Petra was by far and away, not their favored candidate. Um, how do we feel? I mean, do, do you think do you think that uh, these companies are thinking twice over further investment into Colombia? Absolutely. Not just not just in in not just in oil and gas, but more critically coal. Mm. Right. Um, Colombia has a, a, a once in a lifetime opportunity, let's call it, to supply Europe in its time of need. Right when, you know, in Germany, for instance, they're buying firewood, crying out loud, right? Colombia could provide sufficient resources in terms of coal, in terms of oil and gas, and that will help our trade basket. That would help our our government current account deficit, and that would, of course, uh, contribute to the government coffers. Uh, But Petro is very purposefully not doing that, um, which which is contradictory. So while all other oil companies globally are increasing their share price, Ecopetrol share price is falling. And that's a lot to do with uh, the political decisions that this government has made. Yeah, see, this is is what concerns me. I mean, he could still promote 
coal extraction that we're not burning here <laughs> and sell for euros and dollars and pounds or whatever at you know and the obviously the 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 the, the peso being so devalued this is this could be a major income yes but he seems to be wanting to squander that mm. um moreover by wanting to make inroads with venezuela and saying that he, eventually colombia should be buying gas from venezuela which would be absolutely absolutely wrong in my view um look we have to learn from the europeans uh putting your energy dependence at the hands of an authoritarian government not to say a dictatorship is not a good idea yeah. right and venezuela in the past has not been a reliable trade partner has made rash decisions um when there is a political adversary leading colombia and so they're not to be trusted i don't think mm. they're to be trusted but petro wants to put his eggs in that basket because for him the ambitions for the total peace plan um, are reliant on the goodwill of Nicolas Maduro, who is harboring the ELN, who has harbored the FARC dissidences, and whose you know, lack of rule of law in his country represents an immediate security risk for Colombia. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's the key thing. You know, oil and gas or gas com contracts with Venezuela, as you say, like are counterproductive, but he's he's playing a very very fine game isn't he it's 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 to get maduro and his regime on side to be able to ne negotiate total peace but and of course total peace depending entirely yeah i would say you know whether it's a success or a failure and i don't see it being an overwhelming success because of the complexities of this how do you negotiate with a guerrilla group that is you know in another <laughs> in another nation um and gets the tacit, if not open, approval of the regime itself. So I don't know. Maybe the ELN themselves are now a bit of a stone in in you know in the shoe for Maduro. But at the same time, this is a very very risky game to play. And they also have very little incentives mm. to to make this an 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 actual. If you don't negotiate in goodwill, yeah. this is it, right? Yeah. Um, two of the reasons why the FARC's um, negotiation um, was successful it was partially because there was a credible threat that if the FARC were not going to negotiate in full faith, they would be killed yeah. because the military had uh, the advantage over them. Yeah. And, and in fact, several negotiators of the FARC uh, who came to Colombia for consultations or, or what have you were killed uh, by air raids. Uh, and so that was a real threat. The second is the idea that these ELN commanders will will also want to get the same deal the FARC did in terms of justice, reparations, reconciliation, and non-repetition, and truth, right? Uh, the ELN may think that under a more friendly government, i.e. the Petro administration, they would get they would get a better deal uh, than the FARC did. But the truth is, um, international justice is not going to lower the bar for the ELN. They are not that special. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, take into account the peace process with the FARC started in secrecy. The peace process with the ELN is not starting in secrecy. Uh, although very little is actually known about the progress in the table, 
there's actually a lot of pressure on the Colombian government to deliver on this. And so if if that if the pressure on the Colombian government is to deliver a successful peace deal, um, what incentives do they have to actually negotiate the best peace deal in the interests of the Colombian people? Yeah. That's 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 unclear to me. I do, it doesn't. Yeah, as you say, there's a lack of clarity what's going on right now. And of course, one of the other things going on behind the scenes is how Petro having sort of uh, given his approval or you know uh, to to the start of the talks there in. In Venezuela is, of course, another sort of negotiation as well that the Venezuelan regime should recommence talks as well with the opposition. I guess is it it Mexico they're doing it? And I mean, these things, everything's connected. And that's what worries me the most is that it is. is Yeah, that's the other side of of the equation. Yeah. Yeah. That's the other side of the equation, because Maduro is also playing his Mm. uh, hold on power. Yeah. Uh, with the opposition, whether or not they have negotiations that reach a, a presidential election next year. Uh, I mean, that's crazy, right? To, th- mm. to think that that whether or not holding a presidential election is on the negotiation table. Like, can we call this a dictatorship already? Uh, because if, if you're negotiating whether or not you have an election in the first place, you are not a democracy. Yeah. Um, so, so I think, you know, Maduro knows that he... He he needs international legitimacy and international claim. Petro seems to be providing it both on ideological grounds, but also um, to facilitate his own peace endeavors. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it is all interlinked and perhaps interdependent. As I say, the interdependency is perhaps, for me, the best way of, of, of describing this. And it makes it very, very difficult to see a... An entirely positive uh, outcome. <laughs> that's that's for me because there's just too many parts in play. And like you said, I mean, let's let's talk about the ELN. I mean, only for seconds, really. Okay, so uh, three thousand something men, um, but this is the seventh time they've you know seventh president <laughs> they've they've negotiated with. The, you know what seventh makes time is the charm. Yeah, maybe seventh time lucky. I don't know. Do they have nine lives like a cat? I don't know. <laughs> it's like, but you know, economically, know. it doesn't they, make they sense. Are, they certainly are old. Yeah, they certainly are old enough mm. that makes some sort of agreement now uh, a more a more ultimate sort of life ending accomplishment. Look, you know, for all he did in the past, Timo Leon. Jimenez, Timochenko, the FARC's leader, actually stuck with the agreement that he signed. Yeah. Like a lot of power to him, yeah. right? He he still did a lot of very, very bad things. Uh, he's still a person that that committed heinous acts of murder, kidnapping, rape um, during his time, which should not be forgotten. But at least when he disarmed, when he when he mm. gave up arms and dedicated himself to peace. He did so sincerely. So the ELN don't necessarily have that, um, those bona fides yet, because Mm. we haven't seen very important peace overtures from them. They do not commit to a disarmament. They will not. They have not rejected kidnapping or extortions as principal instruments of um, financing their organization, and they have not stopped um, attacks against uh, the public service. Maybe we are in a de facto ceasefire. That's nice, but when does that? How how lasting will that ceasefire be? 
contingent on the ELN not succeeding in its intended goals on the negotiation table. Yeah, a huge, a huge thing could be, you know, actually Paolo Beltran or, you know, the Otti or whatever, coming out and actually making great declarations, but following them up, following them through a little bit. But you've touched on some things there that come straight into your uh, Columbia Risk Analysis latest report, the 2022 Subnational Risk Index, uh, which is an exhaustive report uh you know you you went through every single department in colombia looking at the six factors of security politics economy institutionality society and the environment and when we look at let's say security uh that's your sort of macro and then you've got these sub factors and you you mentioned i mean you, we've just talked about homicides kidnapping and, and extortion so I mean, you went right into this, and of course, the ELN plays a huge role, as do the dissidents, as do the other uh, armed groups around the country. Tell us a little bit about, you know, if we were to talk about security uh, in risk in Colombia from the basis of this new report. Well, thanks, thanks for that, Richard. I think you know, from from a thirty-five thousand foot view. Uh, one of the things that we try to do in this in this report in in its second version is is do something that you know large consulting outfits do, which is you know they 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 assign a risk category and then they pin it on all countries across the world. But then it begs the question: like, is the entire country that risky? And the the answer is no, absolutely not. There's a lot of um, subtlety uh, between the the country level. And looking at the at the lower level, and of course we make a very similar mistake in this report, which is we're looking at a department wide risk, right? Uh, we need to go even further down to a municipal risk, right? Um, um, that that's I guess the next stage of of this work um, that we need to do. But at least we're trying to make this so. Um, our our investors and our subscribers and people who really want to dig deep in Colombia understand where they're getting at. And they see, we see basically three large conclusions. The first one is being closer to the center and to urban areas is better than not, right? That, mm-hmm. that sounds fairly obvious, but uh, cities like Bogota and places like uh, the, the Eje Cafetero uh, are the ones that have the the highest risk rating or the, or the best risk ratings, yeah. the, the the lowest risk ratings, um, largely because of the close distances, the good offer of state presence, goods and services, and low um, security incidents. The same can be said for San Andres and Providencia. So security plays a very very large role. In, in in determining uh, a department's risk index, and we look at we look at those um, issues like, like homicide, kidnapping. Uh, we look at at um, let me just we look mm-hmm. at uh, extortion. We look at massacres, killings of social leaders, hectares of coca planted uh, to 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 really you know become a proxy for are there criminal organizations, are there criminal groups, is there going to be problems uh, for an international investor or for that matter, a local investor when they mm-hmm. go to those places. And of course, we we find some of the usual suspects here, 
in terms of in terms of security. One of the one of the least safe departments, of course, is uh, the, the the Cauca department, uh, where you know a lot of security incidents um, take place, a lot of hostile takeovers uh, of things, followed by Arauca, mm. uh, where the ELN has a very strong presence, followed by Valle del Cauca. Um, mm. In, in Buenaventura and the Pacific, where a lot of um, extortions and kidnappings uh, take place to date, um, followed by Antioquia. Uh, and in Antioquia, particularly in the Bajo Cauca Antioqueño, it's a very complicated area. But of course, you know, having be Antioquia being such a large department, that, that gets overshadowed uh, in, 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 in a large way. Uh, I think I think that those those are important takeaways. Um, from from this report, but we do understand uh, that security plays a, a fundamental uh, role in a business decision making whether or not investing in a country or investing in a particular department is a good idea. Yeah, it's. I mean, the security and the perception as well, security. And I, I, I mean, if you were to do a report on municipalities, we'd be here for five years. Um, but you could, I guess, pick the most—I uh, don't know—you know, the, the the most extreme and the best, and then sort of leave the rest. But it's it, it, this this issue of of the security, and you you mentioned the departments of like Cauca, Putumayo, Choco, Arauca, Valle Cauca. I mean, and again, these are coca-growing areas, so they're strategic as well, and and state presence of course, is is limited. So we start to see patterns between these things. But then there was something else in there when we talk about like institutionality. Was it inst- was it the section on institutionality yes. where Valle de Cauca yes. did actually quite well? Let me let me just pull that right. up. Forgive me for forgive me for throwing that out there. But I just saw there was something positive coming out of Valle del Cauca. And I was like, really? Wow. I didn't expect that, which would which would suggest um you know, this suggests that yeah, something's Valle del right. Cauca is actually one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, tenth least mm. risky in terms yeah. of institutionality. So it's it's in the top. It's in the top half. Um, which, not surprisingly, which, the department yeah. with with the most institutional presence is Bogota. Mm-hmm. Claro, of course. Right? There, there, there's where you see the real center periphery divide. Mm. You know. Yeah, I mean, I was just, I was curious about that because I was, uh, about Valle del Cauca, I would have expected it to be further down, especially in terms of its institutionality. Because when you're talking about that, there's a very, you know, the, it, it, it runs parallel to the, the politics, society, and sort of how effective uh, contracts and policies can be carried out. And to see Valle del Cauca as number 10 was like, hang on, out of the, you know, the 32. As, and of course, being a being a very problematic department, I thought that then there is hope. You know, <laughs> that's what I thought. That's, yeah. that's what I. No, took the, away. the interesting bit, Richard, and, and I'm glad you mentioned the, the municipal level. Um, the 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 sponsor of this report, the Center for International Private Enterprise. Um, we have a project with them for next year to do regional risk index for the Pacific region for the Caribbean region, and for the Orinoco region of, of wow. Colombia. They really want to dig in in terms of those risks, and they also want us to interact with uh, private business owners in these areas to get their feel for, for how 
uh, how to endeavor, how to become resilient businesses in these areas so that we can help both businesses decide and also governments to improve. Because one of the things that we we, we think is by having um, a benchmark, by having examples of what makes a better depart a, a department better than another, uh, we're, we're going to see a race to the top. And this is really going to create incentives from departmental leaders, mm -hmm. particularly in the run-up to the local elections in October 2023, um, to improve. Mm. So we hope that this um, exercise uh, is a useful addition, helps people analyze the country uh, differently, helps investors understand where they're standing, um, mm. and, and, and helps us also say, you know, if if you want to dig in deeper in terms of your um, particular sector or the particular area where you're working, you know, call us and we'll we'll, we'll happily work with you. There you go, call them. Um, <laughs> I think it's amazing, you know. As I said at the very beginning, you know, we've we've kind of just gone parallel to one another in this, but you are now being financed by places as prestigious as the Center for International Private Enterprise. So I think we should. Uh, we should highlight that and say, you know, congratulations on growing this, this, uh, you know, Columbia risk analysis you, yourself with a laptop at home. Now you have an office and a team and so on. It's it's very good. And the weekly pod crust, so pod C R A S T, uh, that you send out is excellent. Your 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 colleagues do a very very good job on explainers let's say a couple of minutes explaining a situation in colombia so i want to say another thing quickly though when i read when i read these reports and i think of course it's it's actually quite open in the report uh for me you know and and you say it that colombia is not a in uh what would you say it's not for investments that are rapid you're not going to get uh, massive return straight away. It's, it's a the overall investment climate for Colombia is one of long term investments. Absolutely. Look, you know, I think that that's 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 one of the major takeaways uh, for a report like this, and for people who who want to invest in Colombia, it's absolutely not for the faint of heart. Mm. It's not for those that are looking for quarterly returns or or semestral or even yearly returns on their on their investment it's for those who are thinking in the long term in the decades realm of of doing things because you've been here long enough richard <laughs> yeah that you can say you can say that colombia in 2022 is better than it was in 2012 and it leaps and bounds better than it was in 20, 2002 yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so I have no doubts that the upward trajectory of Colombia will make the country very, very much better than it is now in 2032 and even more so in 2042. But yeah. that's not going to come up, come without bumps in the road. And, and of course, the Petro administration for a lot of people represents a major risk. Mm. Um but the way we see it is Petro's invested in also improving the country, mm. not, not making it worse. Of course, he has a vision that, that means additional risk for the private sector, but he's not going to you know, burn it down like Maduro did his own country yeah. um, and Chavez before him, right, for, for, for many different reasons. But I do think that Colombia is going to remain um, a capitalist, open economy. Um, Mm -hmm. Colombia is going to have uh, an improving business climate. Colombia's 
human capital is going to continue being interesting. And of course, Colombia is blessed with a, a very generous geography, with ample natural resources, uh, and with a domestic market that is going to continue growing. Um, mm. And so those things are going to be valuable, whether now, whether in five years, whether in 10 years. So the, the problem is the risk sensitivity of some investors uh, dissuades them from looking at Colombia as an investment destination. That's where we run into a geopolitical problem. <laughs> because, of course, uh, the Chinese don't have the same uh, risk sensitivity than many of their European or North American peers do. Um, and the Chinese are very, very much interested in expanding their footprint in Colombia. Uh, will uh, will the Petro administration, are they making greater overtures to China than maybe to the US? I think it's pretty balanced right now. Okay. Petro has met with you know there's there's a there's a state department or there's a high level government delegation from the united states here i think every week yeah. i think they are putting on their best foot forward um to make an impression on on petro and and whatnot um but i also think petro is looking at the relationship with the us and china mm. through the lens of pragmatism yeah. he wants to be able to do business with the chinese He's interested in China's investment. He also wants the Americans and the Europeans to bid for projects in Colombia. Yeah. And, and they should compete and give Colombia the best deal. Colombia shouldn't dissuade China from participating in its public tenders, mm. like the 5G auction that is coming next year, uh, just out of goodwill and respect for its, its, uh, its trade partners in the U.S. and Europe. Uh, it should it should have the U.S. and Europe compete openly. The problem is China isn't necessarily beholden to the same either political constraints or economic targets. Um, and all of Chinese companies are, are partially state owned. So there is a direct involvement from from the Chinese Communist Party in making some of these goals happen. So they may be willing to take a short term financial hit to see projects come to fruition. So it is it is a delicate um, issue that we're, of course, going to try to do more work on next year. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that's something that obviously is, is of great interest to any investor or investment group, considering, you know, what might happen in the interim period, and of course, China and the US and what is going on globally i i find it i mean, I find this absolutely fascinating. And you know, I heard you talk uh, at an event uh, some months ago now and you, you you know you you were very good talking about colombia being so much better than it was in 2002 2012 you know i started my businesses in 2008 and i had a 10 year plan because you know you don't do a 5 year plan in colombia it was a 10 year plan in 2018 19 was phenomenal uh, and who plans for a pandemic you know so now we're sort of picking up the pieces again but but it was the 10 year project had really begun to to bear fruit and i think so it really struck with me that you have this so clearly explained it's like colombia despite the, the bumps in the road or more serious still continues in the right direction and that is a very key point about gustavo petro he's not planning i mean it's not in his portfolio to burn down institutions in colombia he he you know at the underlying issue 
beyond the ego and beyond the the academic speeches and the the nominations is you know more just Colombia I think am I wrong no I think you're right I think I think he strives for a a, a fair Colombia and I think he's looking to make progress on those three goals that I mentioned initially which is to reevaluate or reassess the role of the private sector in the creation of um, wealth to make sure that the state plays a larger role in the redistribution of that wealth and in making sure that the government works for those it it meant it are most vulnerable and it's mean to govern and so i you know those are not bad um depending on where you stand those are not necessarily um life destroying goals um of course uh europe European Social Democrat would believe the very same thing. Uh, and so in a way, I think Petro's aspirations are not that very different. Um, but because in Colombia, we've only had right-wing governments, um, then people find Petro very toxic. Um, I think we're going to have to mature uh, and make sure that, you know, peaceful transfer of power remains among the central tenets of Colombian democracy. And that people who think differently should be able to share power, should mm -hmm. be able to uh, be in power if they play by the rules and mm -hmm. if they become elected. Yeah, I think that that point there, I said there's a lot of political immaturity. Um, and I think the political immaturity led to uh, our, our runner-up in the, in the elections, <laughs> to being the runner-up in the elections. But uh, I think uh, this we've covered everything that I wanted to cover today, Sergio. So let me just say thank you for your time and advise all of the listeners, check out the website, that's columbiariskanalysis.com and look at this new report, the 2022 Subnational Risk Index. It's a really, really good report. That you, I mean, I don't know how long it took you guys to write it because five <laughs> it's months. five months of work. You know, I don't, I, well, the only thing I did five months on or a bit more was my, my, my PhD thesis. So there you go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. The equivalent is, uh, of this. And, and congratulations for getting financing from an international enterprise. I mean, that's it's a huge deal. So Sergio, thank you for your time and thank you for your knowledge and sharing it with us always. I know this will be popular amongst uh, the listeners. This is going to be one of the last shows of the year before we take a break. Uh, and I have hopefully quite a surprise in the pipeline for, for the coming week, but we will see if that person comes through. Anyway, Sergio, thank you again. Richard, thank you very much to all the listeners. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Uh, please, please uh, keep on listening to Colombia Calling. Uh, if you can, pitch in to Richard's Patreon. He does a great job, <laughs> and, and we need more of this information coming out and coming to you every week. Well, as I always say, flattery will get you absolutely everywhere. Uh, yes, thank you for that. We are on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling. And now we'll go over to a couple of words from our sponsors. So thank you again for listening. The Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial 
at latinnews.com. The Columbia Calling Podcast is also proud to say that we are sponsored by BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator in Columbia, providing a large range of private day tours, transportation, and bespoke packages throughout Columbia since 2017. By popular demand, from January 2023, they will be providing exclusive small group shared tours for those aged 50 and over. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a private package of your own, just complete the form on the Columbia Calling website, that's columbiacalling.co, or the Plan My Trip form on the BNB Columbia Tours website, that's bnbcolumbia.com, and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all your questions, and to start the planning of your Columbia adventure. So please support our sponsors, our patrons here on the Columbia Calling Podcast. That's bnbcolumbia.com and latinnews.com. Thank you again. Bye-bye.